Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. This podcast has not been sanctioned. The battleground was Monday nights. 80. For a campaign of 83 consecutive weeks. 3. There was a clear winner. This is the war. Weeks. This is the story of that campaign. 83 weeks. 20 years later, the time has come for the whole truth. For the whole truth. This is 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. And of course, Eric is on a roll, man. You have got the internet talking after last week's episode, Bret Hart and WCW. What was the feedback you got, man? I would say about 75 or 80% of it was very positive and supportive and everybody else was drinking, you know, pink lemonade. It, uh, it's a weird deal, man, because people were fired up about Bret Hart. I found this to be sort of a pattern though. Whenever we talk about Bret Hart on any of my podcasts, whether it's uh, something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard or what happened when with Tony Schiavone, it almost feels like my co-host has the same take, but the internet does not. Lots of people were calling bullshit. Dave Meltzer included on your version of events. And I believe Dave Meltzer has even seen the contract that you say you never issued Bret Hart in 1996. Well, you know what? If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Let's, uh, let's put it out there. Let's take a look at it. You know, I'm, I'm not afraid to admit when I'm wrong. Um, but you know, I'm only going to do that if I see evidence. So let's do it. You know, the one thing I'll say about Dave Meltzer, um, this is a guy who, according to what you read to me on last week's episode, said that Mabel, Mabel was under consideration to be the third man in the NWO. So excuse me if I don't take anything the man has to say seriously. Well, hopefully we're going to take uh, today's episode seriously because we're going to be talking about a pretty controversial figure through the course of wrestling. And, uh, it's even been controversial this calendar month as we record here in May of 2018, Vince Russo. It didn't take us long to get here. Only four weeks. Uh, Oh Oh my God. You know, I haven't had a drink in a long time, but hold on. I don't have to get to the fridge. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I just got to prepare myself for this is going to be painful. It's, um, it it is going to be painful because we're going to talk about a lot of stuff that you know, maybe hasn't been told before. And and I want to do this format just a little different today. We're going to go a little looser because the timeline here is rather interesting with who's coming and who's going. So let's sort of set the stage here. Bash at the beach. 2000 goes down on July 9th in Daytona beach. It only has 4,447 paid fans. That's less than what all in did in half an hour. Uh, the gate is $127,000 and only 25 grand in merchandise. Now by comparison, bash at the beach four years prior, 1996, which we've covered in episode one. That's of course where Hulk Hogan turned heel the exact same building. And it drew 8,300 fans sold out two and a half hours early, turned another 2000 away, uh, a much different feeling and environment here. 
And there's probably lots of blame to go around. One of the things being we're just a couple of months after a David Arquette title win. It's an interesting time in WCW to say the least, but I guess we should remind everybody that you actually weren't here for all of 2000. I think I've heard you tell the story, you know, off air once before that you saw the radicals jump ship and, and realized that they were on Monday night raw and thought, well, I might be getting a call and that's a story for another day, but that happened at the very end of January of 2000. So and we'll tell the whole story of your return one day, but when did you come back into WCW? You mean the cliff notes version and maybe a guesstimate. I ask that way because on TV, we don't see you until April of 2000, but I'm led to believe you were there before you were on TV. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. I came back at some point. It may have been, um, March. We'll call it March 1st. It was because by the time, you know, Brad reached out to me, we you know negotiated a new deal came up with a little bit of a plan and a working relationship. Uh, it, it took me a while to figure it out. And I was working behind the scenes, uh, with Ed Ferrara who, you know, was working closely with, with Russo at that time. And I was trying to keep my, um, involvement as minimal as possible, at least as, uh, you know, so that it wasn't obvious. So I would communicate with Ed, Ed would then communicate with Vince and that would be that. Um, but so, yeah, I, I think why, I came back sometime in March. Why, why the, um, why, why the buffer, you know, you, you to add, add to Vince was, was Vince not happy that you were sort of, uh, back in the saddle, so to speak. What did he, no, what? no, 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 no. It, it was because until we had a plan, you know, under the circumstances, you know, me departing in September and here I was, you know, four months later or whatever it was, it, it just, I wanted to make sure that we had some kind of a plan that would explain me being back involved creatively and, and on camera before I just showed up on TV. It was, you know, the, things were so chaotic back then that, you know, we just didn't need any more chaos. And I thought it was pretty important to have a plan. I had a meeting with Vince Russo, you know, when, when Brad Siegel asked me to come back, um, Brad, Brad, you know, he had, he was under contract with Russo. It wasn't like he could fire him. He was stuck with him. And obviously, you know, by virtue of the fact that they brought me back, they clearly weren't very happy with the decision they made to bring him in. Or believe me, they would have not brought me back. It was painful for Turner to do that. Not only financially, but every other way, politically. So, you know, Brad said, look, I got to make sure this is going to work. Could you please meet with Rousseau? This is before I agreed to come back. Um, could you please meet with him and just tell me if you think you can work with him? Because Brad knew I was stubborn <laughs> to say the least. And I said, sure, you know, I'll, I'll meet with him. And we, we actually met, I, I met Russo at a little restaurant actually where I, um, kept my airplane. I w it was over in Kennesaw, Georgia. And I wanted to meet him somewhere where, you know, it wouldn't be obvious. Not that anybody knew who Vince Russo was because he, <laughs> he had, no, 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 I don't mean that. That's no, not, I'm, I'm that's, just laughing at what a douche move it is where you're like, uh, come meet me at my private hangar, you peon. No, no, I, no, I didn't meet. No, I, I did. I didn't meet him at my private hangar. I'm, I'm saying I met him at a restaurant that was like near, near the airport, near my private hangar. There you go. But I, but I did that because I didn't want, you know, Russo wasn't a. He hadn't been on camera. It wasn't like I was worried, you know, that I was sitting down having a meeting with, you know, Vince McMahon or Stone Cold Steve Austin or The Undertaker where people in Atlanta would see it and go, oh, my God, did you see them? Too? You know, we'd re be reading about it on the Internet. 
nobody knew who Russo was in, in terms of what he looked like. But I, I just wanted it to be discreet. I didn't want the off chance that somebody from Turner or somebody from WCW would see us meeting. So I asked him to meet me up where I kept my plane, which is about 30 miles north of Atlanta. And we sat down um, and had coffee. And, he, you know, Vince Russo is, you know, and this is, his, <laughs> this is one of the reasons I think he's been able to perpetrate the kind of creative crimes he's been able to perpetrate for so long. He's a very likable guy. Yeah. Incredibly likable, very charming when he wants to be, I've, I've, I've had several interactions with him. I like him. I know you don't, but I mean, I like, he's always been cool to me. You like him because you don't really know him. Okay. But, and I felt the same way. I was like, you know, this guy's pretty cool. You know, he's got that, you know, blue collar, New York kind of down to earth, you know, you, you see, he seems like he's being really transparent and honest and, you know, he's just, a, he's a very charming guy. And I thought, well, what the hell, you know, I don't have to like somebody to work with him. I just have to trust him. And, and I thought, well, this guy, you know, I kind of half-assed my first impression was, I think I could like this guy and he doesn't give me any reason not to trust him. So hell yeah, we'll try to make it work. But I still felt like we needed to have a plan. And that's why I kind of kept myself under wraps for a while. So once you're sort of back in the fold, what is your official role and capacity and what is your daily interaction with Vince and sort of talk us through, you know, from say March until July, how that relationship had sort of ebbed and flowed. And then we'll get deep into bash at the beach. <laughs> Well, when Siegel brought me in, Brad Siegel brought me in, he was clearly unhappy with what Russo had delivered. You know, Vince Russo came in having convinced Bill Bush, you know, Don Knotts, that um, Barney Fife of WCW, as I refer to him, he had convinced Bill Bush and others that, you know, Vince Russo was the reason, the sole reason for the Attitude Era. He was the reason that WWE was, or WWF at the time, was able to turn the tide. That was all the creative genius of one guy, that being Vince Russo. And WCW, being desperate and ignorant at the same time, went, oh, my God, this is like, this is the mother load. We, we lost Eric, but we got this guy that has turned WWF around, and we're going to be able to steal him from Vince McMahon. Well, that took about a month and a half to realize that that was not right. Ergo, you know, bringing me back. Um, and when Brad brought me back, he said, look, we're not happy at all with what Russo's doing. He's out of control. You know, and I remember, you know, the one way Brad phrased it that sticks out of my mind that I, I do recall vividly was him suggesting that everything that Vince Russo does is dark. Now, I kind of understood what he meant at that time. Um, and I can't tell you everything that was in his mind when he said it. But if you look look back at a lot of the stuff that Russo was doing, it was just it was dark. It there was no high spots in it. There was no ebb and flow creatively uh, to it. It was just all very very dark, and none of it made any sense. So Brad said, "Look, I want you to come back," and I made it clear to to, to Siegel that I want I did not want to come back as an employee. I just didn't want to get back into the same you know not so environment that I had you know, got myself out of intentionally or otherwise. Um, but I said, look, I'll, I'll come in and I'll oversee things creatively, 
but I don't want to be an employee. I just don't want to get back into the meat grinder. And he agreed to that. So my role, to answer your question, was to oversee creative. I had final approval. Actually, Brad Siegel had final. If, if it were you know a three-way, if Russo wanted to do one thing and I wanted to do another, um, the tiebreaker was Brad Siegel. But on a day-to-day basis, barring any kind of you know, head-on collision, creatively speaking, my job was to shape creative and oversee Rousseau. So when you're sort of shaping creative and overseeing him, does he have to submit scripts to you? And, and what time does that have to happen? Like, what's that process look like where he delivers that? You know, it was never really in all my time in nitro, you know, we didn't have the, the process is probably very much like it is in WWE today. You finish up one TV, you go back home you know, I'm sure in WWE, the writers get done on, on Monday night, you know, they're back in the office or back on a plane or whatever, however they do it. And they're writing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they submit it on Friday. Somebody approves it on Friday and then it gets all rewritten on Monday. <laughs> so, um, that process was probably it, it, the process back then was pretty close to what it is right now, probably in WWE where, you know, I wanted to see an over by that time I had finally convinced myself, I guess, that the, the way to approach creative was in six-month arcs and, and have a long-term plan, knowing full well that that plan was going to change, but at least you had somewhere to start from. So my goal when I came back wasn't to try to fix everything overnight. It was to try to figure out a way to, to plan you know, a three or six month arc whereby we could kind of get the, the wheels creatively back on the, on the property again, because they had fallen off so badly. So to answer your question, you know, I, I wanted to, at least initially it was like, okay, this was this week's show. Let's talk about what's going to happen next week. And then if we had an idea what was going to happen next week, how does that take us into the following week? I was trying to get to a three or six month arc, like one week, two weeks, three weeks at a time. If that makes sense. Yeah. But, but that was a struggle because with, with Russo, everything was, you know, he, he's defined his style. If you want to call it a style as crash TV, which basically is, I don't know. I'm just going to throw shit up against the wall and see what sticks And the more chaotic it is, you know, the less anybody will care if it makes any sense. That's really what crash TV is, uh, in my opinion. And the, 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 thing I learned about Russo right off the bat, and this is when I really figured out, it was probably about a month in, um, that there was nothing under the hood, was that all you had to do to, to get a deer-in-the-headlights look out of Vince Russo, because you know, maybe you don't know this, but if, he, if he's ever pitched you an idea and if he's ever been passionate about something, he'll, he'll, bro, he'll pitch you to death. And the way he pitches is so convincing that he literally can sell you shit you know you don't want. He's that good at it. And I would succumb to it. it you know, it was you know, a couple of weeks I kind of fell into it going, okay, well, he's so passionate about it. It must, it, maybe it makes sense and I can't see it. And I'll let him have a little more rope and I'll let it go. Because, I, again, I didn't want to come in and Bigfoot my way back. You know, that was the reputation that I had, you know, in turn when they let me go. Not so much on the creative side of things and the WCW side of things, but I was Bigfoot my way around the corporate side in a way that was, you know, inappropriate, really, looking back on it now. Give me an example. But, oh, I was 
I was calling out people in finance and disparaging them in front of groups of people in corporate meetings, telling them they didn't know what the hell they were talking about. But so when I came back, my goal was really to try to be a better corporate citizen because I knew I messed up. I did. I really fucked up. I played a card that I didn't, I thought Ted Turner was going to be there to save my ass because they always had before whenever things got tense, whenever I was trying to get my way and there were people above me resisting it, I just play that card and play that card. Even the threat of playing the card usually would get me what I needed. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until somebody, you know, says, all right, well, let's get in front of Ted and see what Ted wants to do. That would have been a win for me. At least I thought it would have been. Little did I know Ted wasn't there. Now, you know, having come back and realized, you know, how poorly I played that hand of poker, my goal was to try to get along a little better and be a little smarter. So um, I tried. I really tried. But the, the big, you know, the thing that I learned with Russo is as passionate as he could be and emotional and committed and he could bro you to death and the way he delivers the way he lays out a match and tells you how great, bro, this is going to be. And all you had to do was say, great, Vince, I like it. What are we going to do next week? And then you'd get that deer in the headlights look. Completely shut him down. Because he never thought about next week or two weeks from now or two months from now, three months from now. He never thought. He, he was a, you know, he, he, you know, a hot angle. He was great at laying out a crazy finish. And, and, and I think that's the thing that people who've never been in the business, and I'm not being critical here because, you know, a lot of people are fans of the business, know what they like when they watch it on television, know what they don't like, and have, you know, reasonable, educated opinions about the property, even though they've never worked in the business. I get that. But when you've been in the business and you know what it takes to make things work, and you're talking to somebody that only thinks one match at a time, there's nothing there. It's a vacuum, creatively speaking. Anybody can come up with a great match. Anybody can come up with a great moment in a match. Bret Hart putting the metal plate under the hockey jersey is a perfect example. That was a great finish. That wasn't a storyline. That wasn't a three-month arc. That wasn't a story that would lead to a big pay-per-view and and built every single week where there were stakes and there were risks and there was a hero's journey so that 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 underdog who had been denied or had been cheated, you know, was on this incredible journey to finally reach, you know, his or her goal. That was just a that was a beat. That was a that was an angle in a match. Those are not hard to create. What's hard to create is a three or four or six month arc that really matters and be able to execute it and maintain it so that it's successful. And yet you approve David Arquette, a story for another time. Uh, <laughs> let, let, let's get going here. Uh, the, the July 3rd nitro, neither you nor Russo were there. It's the go home nitro before the pay-per-view and you're not there and neither is he. What's up with that? Why the fuck weren't you at Nitro on the go home edition for a big pay-per-view? Feels weird. Uh, well, no, it wasn't weird. Remember, I was I was a consultant at the time. I wasn't an employee. I wasn't, you know, the president of the company. I, I didn't even have an official title. I didn't even have a business card for crying out loud. Um I guess my the job, question is though, if you know Russo's not gonna be there, you wouldn't think you needed to be there to sort of fill in the gap? No. 
No, I had made plans. Anybody that knows me and has known me for any length of time knows that the 4th of July is akin to a religious holiday to me. And I don't work over the 4th of July. Never have, never will under any circumstances. Uh, it's a, it's a, you know, my family all gets together. It's kind of a, a family reunion and, you know, I spend time with my kids and, you know, I'll, I'll bust my balls 24 hours a day, you know, 363 days out of the year. But for a day or two over the 4th of July, you can't get to me. So I was in Wyoming and, um, there had been a lot of, you know, I, everybody knew I wasn't going to be in town. It's, you know, like I said, I have friends and family that fly in from all over the country. We make plans a year in advance. So this is, this is a deal and I don't change it. And everybody knew it. Well, by that time, now we're, we're heading into Bash at the Beach. Now that relationship between Vince and I, Russo and I had gotten pretty tense. I started, you know, I was challenging him more and more, you know, trying to get him to think longer term, trying to get, you know, at least a 30-day storyline out of him, you know, instead of a 30-minute storyline, you know, with this crash TV formula. And, and he didn't get it. You know, he did, and it's, and again, this sounds critical, and I really don't mean it to be, but I, I can't think of another way to say it. His brain just didn't work that way. He didn't understand what a three-act structure was. You know, he called himself a writer because he wrote some silly shit in the WWF magazine. Somehow that, in his mind, made him a writer. And he did work, obviously, you know, in creative under Vince McMahon, and he worked with other people, but still not. He's not a writer, in my my estimation. He, he didn't understand the very basics. He didn't know what a wrestling arc. He didn't know what a storyline arc was. He didn't really know what I meant when I talked about a three act structure. And it was something that I, you know, I had to deal with even in TNA when we worked together. He just his brain didn't work that way. And that's not a knock, you know. There, you know, if somebody tries to talk to me about science or math, I get confused quick. But whatever. And I, by that time, I've been putting more and more pressure on him, especially going into that event because Hulk was critical in that particular event. And the storylines and the things that, that Russo wanted to do made absolutely no freaking sense. And it was very apparent that his anti-Hogan sentiment was driving consciously or subconsciously so much of what he was trying to, to sell um, that I was just like, you know, I was calling bullshit and it was driving him nuts. And the other thing that anybody that's ever worked with Russo for any length of time knows he's fragile. You, when you start challenging him and I don't mean challenging him to a fist fight, but I mean, when you start questioning and making him justify and rationalize, he cracks like an egg, like a quail egg. He just cracks. And then he, you know, he just, he had to go home. He, he, I don't want to call it a breakdown, but it was probably close because of the pressure that he was under and the fact that I was challenging the silly shit he wanted to do and the things that he wanted to do with Hulk were not good for Hulk. They weren't good for WCW. They didn't lend themselves to a, to a long-term story arc. There was no payoff. It wasn't going anywhere. And again, I mean, it got to the point where Hulk and I, because I'd lay this stuff out to Terry, and I think Vince may have even called Hulk once or twice um, to try to convince him directly. And the running joke between Hulk and I was just let him talk for about 20 minutes because he'll sell his ass off and then just say, okay, Vince, 
where do we go next week? That'd be the end of the conversation because he had nothing. And he went home. He went home because he was having a breakdown or whatever, not a mental breakdown, but he, he was just, he couldn't cope anymore. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So he went home and I was already booked. I was, in, I was 4th of July, Cody, Wyoming, watching a parade. <sighs> it's unbelievable. Meltzer wrote in the observer, most expect Russo to return on seven ten. Supposedly there are problems with the finish of the main event on seven nine. Although so much BS is thrown out there. And since it involves Bischoff, Russo and Hogan, everything has to be taken as a possible angle. Originally, when this match was made, Hogan was supposed to win the title from Jarrett. Supposedly the idea, the idea now is for Jarrett to go over, but Hogan who has creative control is balking. Hogan was actually originally scheduled to return on seven, three to shoot an angle, to build up the match. But since Hogan didn't like the finish, he balked at pushing it and didn't come to TV. It wasn't a no show. And that by the time they wrote the TV, they knew Hogan wasn't going to be there and he wasn't in the script. It had been planned all along for Hogan, not to appear on TV until the week before the pay-per-view in order to sell the idea that he was injured in the original attack. In this company, who knows what is and isn't an angle, but the story going around is that they want Hogan to do the job and then his contract, he has creative control and is refusing to do so. So this is Meltzer's version of things looking for a great mother's day or father's day gift idea. I was, and I found it at paint your life with paint your life. You'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. What do you remember about that week? The proposed finish, maybe him not wanting to do business. Chat me up. And and there was no, you know, Hogan refusing to do anything other than Hogan didn't want to do anything that didn't make any sense, you know, and I, and I can't comment anymore really on that paragraph that you just read to me by Meltzer was like the most incoherent diarrhea of of the English language that I think I could possibly try to comprehend. None of it makes any sense. Number one, it's written poorly. Number two, it's all over the map and it's just reporting a bunch of hearsay and nonsense. I I think there are again, elements, uh, actually one of the, one one of our listeners followers here on this podcast suggested that we come up with a t-shirt called the kernel of truth. I saw that. 
yours truly being the colonel, kind of a la, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, colonel of truth, which I know I use that a lot. There are some elements or kernels of truth in what what Dave wrote in that, you know, Hogan wasn't there. He, I, I don't know that he was ever supposed to be there. We were building a storyline, at least I was building a storyline with Hulk that would have led to a, a series of events at the pay-per-view that would have taken us into October. Again, thinking about a long-term plan. And I don't recall that having Hulk showing up on TV was you know, a requisite for any of that story. So I can't really comment on whether Hulk sh- didn't show up for any other reason other than it probably just didn't make any sense. And going into, you know, I was, again, I was in Wyoming. Now, on the 4th of July, my father passed away the morning of the 4th when I, when I was in Wyoming. So for a few days, I was a little occupied with that. And there was not as much communication between Vince and I or anybody else other than Terry or Hulk. Um, so there, there was a couple of days of dark, you know, uh, a dark period, meaning I just wasn't available because I was dealing with a lot of other stuff. I had to fly to Minneapolis and be with my family and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think, you know, what I do remember is just, you know, working with Hulk closely and saying, look, you and I will figure it out because clearly Russo doesn't have a plan and isn't capable of coming up with one. But Hulk and I had enough of a relationship and we enough trust creatively. And I knew I could come up with something that would make sense. Um, so the idea was probably, I'm guessing, you don't need to be on TV. Now, this would have been you know, prior to that, but you don't need to be on TV. Let's figure it out at the pay-per-view. And that's, you know, and, and we would have worked on it before the pay-per-view, but, you know, there was just no need for, for Hulk to be on TV, to be a part of a storyline that didn't make any sense. Well, um, the original idea, you know, can you sort of talk us through, you know, from your perspective, that 4th of July, when you took off, what did you think the finish would be? You know, I don't, I'll tell you what I thought the, well, here's what I remember the outcome was going to be. Okay, I don't remember the exact finish and how we would get to the outcome, but the end result, the catalyst for the next July, August, September, October, the next 90 days was going to be whatever the finish was. It was a finish that was designed to piss Hulk off, whether it was, you know, Jeff Jarrett, you know, just – Falling down, a you know, fucking we schmoz, like a a, it, a fuck angle. Yeah, it was it was it was a fucked up angle, and and honestly, what we were do, what I was trying to do was make chicken salad out of chicken shit, because there had been so much chaos. Creatively speaking, people were so disgusted with WCW from, you know, early you know mid nineteen ninety nine, early nineteen ninety nine. There were so many things that had been going wrong, that you know we clearly had to kind of clean the slate, so to speak title switching back and forth, you know, and I, I'll take the heat for a lot of that. And, and there was just so much that had gone wrong. We knew that we had to kind of get our feet back underneath us. And my thought was, let's do something that will make the title, the, the world heavyweight championship matter. Let's, let's create stakes. I've always believed this. Anybody that's ever worked with me for the last 10 years will tell you I pound that into their head. If you ever talk to Bully Ray, ask him how many times in creative meetings in TNA I beat the fucking table till my fists were bloody talking about where are the stakes in this idea. 
Because if you don't have stakes, if it doesn't really matter to the talent in a storyline point of view, it's not going to matter to the audience. And I knew that back in 99 or 2000. So the idea was let's create stakes. Let's make the title important. We flipped this thing so many times. Nobody gives two shits about who has the title. It just doesn't matter anymore. So the finish was going to lead us to a moment, a beat, as they would say in, in, in a creative environment, a beat in that match where Hogan looks around. He's disgusted by everything that has just transpired. He grabs the belt and he leaves as champion. But he leaves and he quits. And then yours truly, because we were working everybody in the building, because we had to at that point, because of your good buddy Dave Meltzer, we had to, we worked everybody. We wanted to make this feel as real as we could possibly make it. So when Hogan grabbed that belt, my role as Hogan's boy and, and the guy that was, you know, essentially in control of creative was to, you know, beg and plead and try to stop him from leaving. And, you know, cause that was the, the prevailing, you know, perception was, you know, I was, you know, kissing Hogan's ass all the time. So I played into that. And I, yeah, I wanted everybody, including the cameras and everybody else, to see me, you know, following Hogan into his limo while I'm begging him to, you know, stay and don't leave with the title. And oh my God, this is going to be the end. Oh, I'm going to get fired. And oh my God, Hogan and I got into the limo, and we were high fiving each other because that's exactly the beat we wanted to accomplish, and we did it. And what was supposed to have happened from that point going forward, and this is the big, this is the big left turn here. What was supposed to have happened, and I had gone, and Russo and I and Hulk and Brad Siegel, Brad Siegel had gotten into a heated debate over this whole thing all day long. There's a lot of ground to cover about what happened that day as well. But going into the finish and what was supposed to happen afterwards, um, what was supposed to now happen for the next three months to, to kind of fix the issues that were obvious, meaning the belt changing hands all the time and the belt not meaning anything and not having any stakes and not having any real story and not having any real drama that anybody could get a hold of. What was supposed to have happened is Hogan was supposed to have left and quit with the belt, with the belt, forcing WCW to have a tournament over the course of the next 90 days. And it was going to be an elimination tournament so that at Halloween Havoc, we were going to have two heels, intentionally two heels squaring off for the title. It would have come down to two heels. And then right as those two heels were introduced at Halloween Havoc, Hogan had been off for 90 days, out of sight, out of mind. He was Hulk Hogan. He always gets the reaction that he gets. At that point, Hulk Hogan was supposed to walk out with the title. Stroke his Fu Manchu, wave that big figure, and said, uh uh uh, neither one of these guys are going to be a champion until one of them beats me. And then we were going to have a title match between Hogan and one of the two heels. That's what was supposed to have happened, not anything that did happen. Let's talk about something that happens on the way there. It was reported in the Observer Hogan has been calling Bubba the Love Sponge regularly in Tampa. His latest was that Fox was giving him a $150 million talent budget. And then after the July pay-per-view, he was quitting WCW and working for Fox. Now, of course, this is 
exactly in line with your angle was, was Russo totally opposed to the Hogan goes away and come back angle, or was, was it really more or less about the discussion of the finish that night that everybody had a problem with? No, Hogan was opposed to the angle. He didn't want to do it. He absolutely, he had his own ideas and don't ask me what it was. Cause I don't freaking remember. It didn't make enough sense for it to leave an impression in my mind. Um, he had his own ideas. They were dark. They, they did nothing for Hulk. They did nothing for WCW. They made no sense. They didn't go anywhere. There was no next week, next month, you know, next three months. It was just a, a hot shot, stupid shit angle, which is the only thing he was good at. Hot shot, stupid shit angles that didn't really matter. And it wasn't going to happen. I had a different idea. Hulk had a different idea. Brad Siegel had a different idea. We all agreed to it on a conference call. The day of the pay-per-view, when, when when Bruce, or excuse me, I keep calling Russo Bruce. I don't know why I do that. I'm sorry, Bruce Pritchard. When Russo, you know, pushed and pushed and pushed, you know, trying to get his way, I finally got to the point, you know, the day of the pay-per-view, and I said, fuck it. You know, I'm tired, I'm tired of arguing. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go out to my trailer. I had a motorhome that served as my office at the time. We're going to go out to my motorhome. We're going to get on the phone with Brad Siegel, Russo, Bischoff, Hogan and Siegel, all four of us are going to get on a conference call and Russo, you're going to lay out your stupid shit and I'm going to lay out my stupid shit and whichever stupid shit Brad Siegel decides we're going to do, we're going to do. That's how it's going to go down. And we got everybody. And by the way, you know, Hulk had creative control. He actually trumped Siegel at that point, but Hulk was going along with it. You know, he wasn't being, you know, the creative control guy, you know, the creative control monster that everybody likes to make him out to be. He was like, okay, let's go do the call. Let's see where it goes. And I laid it out and, you know, Russo laid his diary out and Brad didn't even take a breath and said, okay, you know, we're going to do what Eric wants to do. That was it. That those were the marching order. You know, Siegel was a tiebreaker. Let's get to the pay-per-view. Uh, Lieutenant Loco. That's the thing. Chavo Guerrero Jr. Pinned Hooven to Guerrero to retain the cruiserweight title. They go 12 minutes and nine seconds. Um, the FAs came out wearing monster masks while Mark Madden acted like he didn't know who they were. The MIAs came out in masks with general erection, wearing a bill Clinton mask, major guns took off her top, causing Guerrero to be distracted and got crotched a series of reverses and near falls ending with loco using the tornado DDT for the pin three stars. Your thoughts. <sighs> It's a Russo clusterfuck. Cat did more comedy with the dragons. Jarrett did an interview while awesome tried to pick up on the fat Viking woman, apparently trying to make a baby face turn by giving him a character that, that likes large women. Uh, this is uh direct. I did that and sold out. Come on, man. That's a gimmick infringement right there. <laughs> uh, next See, up, nothing. A guy came up with his originally even ripped me off from my own pay-per-view. Big Vito retained the hardcore title, beating Norman Smiley and Ralphus. That's a real pay-per-view match, folks. Uh, five minutes. Ralphus was over. Come on. Ralphus was a cool character. I loved Ralphus, but you know, so it's pay-per-view. five minutes, 55 seconds. It got a dud in the observer. What's your, uh, I don't know when we'll talk about Ralphus again. You loved Ralphus. Tell us the story of how you discovered him, why you greenlit it, why it worked. I don't think I discovered him. I think Jericho did. You know, Jericho was from. Early on, Jericho Jericho took control of as much as he could possibly take control of in terms of his character. You know, obviously in the ring, he had, you know, 
100% latitude, maybe not over finish, but in terms of the way he worked the ring and everything else. But his care, he owned his shit from the get-go. And I think Ralphus was, was Jericho's idea. And I thought it was awesome. You know, I mean, do you remember, you know, Ralphus kind of mimicking, you know, the Goldberg entrance, entrance and, and Jericho mimicking it and, you know, <laughs> Ralphus following, you know, Jericho down to the ring, you know, the way Goldberg's security, you know, followed Goldberg to the ring. I mean, it was just funny shit. It was great entertainment. And that was all, that was all Jericho. That wasn't me. Next up, Daphne defeated Miss Hancock in a wedding gown match. This is on pay-per-view. Uh, they put a wedding cake at ringside. David Flair came out with hair clippers. Hancock did a horrible handspring elbow. First, the girls pulled Mark Johnson's pants off. He looked ridiculous. David Flair had his pants off. He looked semi-ridiculous. Daphne put Hancock's face in David's crotch. Crowbar ran in and took his own pants off. So then he and David started doing spots. Imagine how ridiculous David Flair usually looks trying to wrestle. Multiply that by having both guys working in their underwear. The shears got involved and there was threats to cut Hancock's hair. Then as things couldn't possibly get worse, Hancock grabbed the mic, said she knew what everyone came to see and took off her dress and started dancing in her panties. They explained she voluntarily lost. It ended up with everyone throwing cake at each other. Negative one star. Crash TV, bro, bro, bro. Crash TV, bro. Is is the gimmick here? You know, I just um hey, I don't know why WCW failed, but it's not my fault because that feels like the theme so far, three or four episodes in. What do you mean? What are you saying? Well, I'm saying that you oversaw this shit. So is it really fair for you to beat up on Russo when I mean you kind of allowed this? No, it's I did. I did oversee it and I have to take responsibility, but I I also said when this whole thing started I was trying to give the guy as much slack as I could give him. <laughs> I was trying, you know, I knew what we had to do for the important stuff. There was a lot of things, even when I was, you know, an employee and I was president of the company and I was a very active part of creative 96, 97, 98 is, is when that happened. And it started, you know, with the NWO, that was my first real, presence i would say in creative was the nwo and then afterwards i was very involved prior to the nwo i wasn't i i didn't feel comfortable doing it as we've talked about in the past um but at this point as i said at the very beginning of this you know my goal was to try to i wanted to get along with russo i didn't shut down everything he did that was you know here's here's the thing that people this is not going to be exciting shit Right. This is this is the part where people want to know really what was going on. But when you when you when you try to explain it to them, it gets boring because I'm not burying somebody or I'm not revealing some deep, dark, horrid circuit uh, secret. But there was a culture in Turner and there's a reason why nobody got fired. You know, it's interesting. I, you know, I have this reputation of firing people. You know, I fired Steve Austin. I fired the honky tonk man. And I'm sorry to have to say Steve Austin and the honky tonk man in the same fucking sentence. Cause that's, sac- <laughs> that's, that's sacrilege right there. But, but at the end of the day, I didn't really fire anybody. And one of the reasons, especially in the office, there was a lot of people that should have been terminated and I should have been able to replace, but in turn, you couldn't really fire anybody. You know, you could suggest that they transfer to another division and, 
and and there were you know a number of ways with human resources you could try to work around people, but you couldn't fire anybody. And I learned that the hard way. I really did on September 10th, 1999. So when I came back, even though I wasn't an employee, I was trying to work within the system. I knew my reputation was I was hard to get along with. I was super aggressive. I big-footed people, and I pissed a lot of people off. So my goal when I came back was to do the opposite of that. And there was a lot of things. Again, I didn't try to fix it overnight. I didn't come back in April and try to turn the entire company around overnight because you can't. If, if, if you've ever been involved in a, in a turnaround of every kind, any kind, you know that. It, you just, it's impossible successfully. So my goal was to try to ease my way into it. I tried to work with Russo for a month or two or three until I realized I couldn't do it anymore, which was probably right around the beginning of July when I realized the guy was just not going to, he didn't have anything, which is why he had a meltdown and went home. So between the time I came back and the time of this pay-per-view, I had been trying. I'd give him a little bit of rope. Vince Russo didn't kill WCW. AOL Time Warner killed it. Eric Bischoff didn't kill WCW. AOL Time Warner killed it. And we can go into that another time because I know that we want to stay on Bash at the Beach. But I really want to make clear because people really zero in on this shit. I'm not blaming it on Vince Russo or Kevin Sullivan or anybody else. I'll take the hit. I was a president of the company for the largest period of that time. And even when I came back, I probably had a hammer that was big enough that I could have I could have taken care of some of the silly shit that like that that you just explained. And I didn't. I let it go. My bad. But I didn't come up with it either. Chronic won the WCW tag titles from Palumbo and Stasiak in 13 minutes and 36 seconds. Quote, somehow just four days after their horrible sunburns and goofy tan lines, their skin was perfect and their tans were even. Um, in the end, <laughs> after a lot of near falls, they did a double team move where Clark clothesline Stasiak off the top and Adams pinned him half a star. What's your favorite chronic match? <laughs> You're such a dick. Chris Canyon pinned Booker T in 10 minutes and five seconds. Good match. They did a spot where T took the brick out of the book. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Canyon hit him with the book and T sold it for a near fall, but then got right up with them explaining by he was playing possum. Uh, T did an ax kick and the Uranagi, uh, with near falls before Jarrett came out and hit T with a guitar. And that led to Canyon's pin three stars, man. You just look through this and it's just one, you know, the, the silly sunburn thing forgotten. We're hitting people with bricks. We've got uh, a cake fight with no pants. Um, a, a hardcore match with Ralphus. I mean, people making out with large women, major guns, sh taking her top off with silly names and masks. It's just, here we go. Mike awesome beat Scott Steiner by DQ in nine minutes and 11 seconds. Awesome. Always works hard with his Japanese work ethic to make a match. You can't deny Steiner's physical talents. They were having easily the best match on the show until a really lame finish. 
Steiner used the recliner once. Cat uh, came out and ordered him to break it. Steiner punched Cat. Awesome came back with a low blow and a power bomb with a bridge and a near fall. Splash off the top for another near fall. After a ref bump, you knew we needed one of those. Cat came into the ring and went to kick Steiner, who moved. So Awesome got it. Steiner gave Cat a belly to belly and gave Awesome one, and then put the recliner on. Cat said he'd strip him of the belt if he put it on. He did. Got DQ'd and stripped. And then Steiner suplexed Awesome after the match, and it seemed like there was a slip, and Awesome landed wrong. Three and a quarter stars. So even here, we've got a ref bump, a band move. If you use the move, we're going to DQ you. Uh, Crash TV is the right phrase here, is it not? Well, it is. And here's another symptom. One of the biggest problems that WCW had, and this existed, you know, and I recognized it in probably early 98, um, certainly throughout 99, nobody in our company, me included, by the way. And to this day, if somebody were to hire me to take over creative for a wrestling company, I feel like I'm probably better equipped and have more talent and a a better handle on it now than I've ever had in my life. Um, just because I've made enough mistakes and know enough what, what not to do that, you know, the chances of me being successful are probably greater. But one of the things I know I'm not good at is finishes and finishes are an art into themselves. And one of the things that I knew early on, like I said, even in 98 and certainly in 99 is that there was nobody in my company, including me, that was really good at coming up with a finish that would be a logical, exciting, dramatic way to take us to the next chapter of a story. It's one of the reasons I hired um, Johnny Ace uh, right before I got shit-canned, because I knew we needed that. There was nobody that was good at it. Um, Terry Taylor wasn't good at it. Kevin Sullivan wasn't Kevin Sullivan was good at certain types of finishes. Yeah, Kevin Sullivan was brought into the company originally by Dusty because Dusty convinced me that Kevin really understood heat. And Dusty, when he wanted to bring Sullivan in, felt like he needed somebody that could come up with very, you know, very good heat finishes. That's how that's how Kevin came in. But Kevin, you know, didn't have the ability to come up with the kind of finishes across a lot of different types of matches. He could come up with some pretty gnarly shit, but not every finish needed to be gnarly shit or a heat finish. Um, and what you're just, what what you're describing is an example of, of one of the really big problems that really was a part of WCW, you know, before I became in control and, and certainly even while I was in control and, and afterwards, there was never that, you know, Pat Patterson. There was never that one guy that could take a story and say, okay, what's the story? Where's this going? You know, what do we hope to achieve, you know, next week, next month, whatever? You know, how do we come up with the – because that's the most important. It's like the ending of a movie. You could you could have the best movie in the world. It could be really well written and the, the performances could be amazing. But if the ending of the movie, if the last three minutes of a movie sucks, it sucks. In the movie, in the movie bombs, and that was one of the prevailing problems in in and challenges in WCW throughout the entire existence of the company. There was really never anybody there that was consistently great or even good at finishes, myself included. <sighs> You're not going to believe this. 
Vampiro beat Demon in six minutes and 40 seconds in a pre-taped graveyard match. Asia was also involved. This was like something from a bad Saturday morning kids show with the bad lighting in the graveyard. It was hard to watch and a total waste of time. They ended up in a river. Vampiro kidnapped Asia. Asia was laying dead and Vampiro came out of a casket and spit stuff in demon's eyes. Finally, Vampiro hit demon with one of those breakable tombstones, an actual headstone, not a pile driver and put him in a casket, threw him in a grave and lit it on fire. Negative two stars. So, I mean, do, do you feel no shame? <laughs> I do. What do you want me to do? Throw myself out in front of a fucking truck? Uh, you know, <laughs> but last week you're arguing like, you don't know if we lost money. I mean, you don't know how much money we lost. You don't know. I mean, I don't have the numbers. You don't have the numbers. Nobody. Ha- There's no fucking wonder this thing fucking, I mean, golly. No, it did, but Conrad, come on. I mean, how many times do I have to tell you, you know, from, Late 98, throughout 99, until the time I got shit canned and sent home and told to go fish, my head was not in this game. No shit. No shit. I'm, I'm not denying it. I'm not putting it off on anybody else. And I mean, I'm just not. You can make it sound like that all you want. You can make it sound like I'm blaming other people if that's what you choose to do. And that's what the people that like to read Dave Meltzer want to believe. Fucking feed him that Kool-Aid. I could care less. I've admitted it. What do you want me to do? I mean, Jesus Christ, I came back. I had a plan. I was trying to make it work. I had a guy that was a creative basket case. He was a fragile little one-shot pony that had no real clue what he was doing, and I was trying my best to make it work. Not a fucking excuse. It's a reality. And what you just described is an example of it. I didn't have the ability to just shut everything down. I couldn't fire Vince Russo. I had to get along to get along. I had to play along to get along. And I did my best. Not good enough. I get it. Call me, call me horrible. If you want not lying about anything. I'm not trying to swerve in on anybody and I'm not trying to blame it on anybody for crying out loud. If I, if I accept any more responsibility, I'm going to have to go out and slit my wrists. Well, if you're going to do it, do it at twitch.tv forward slash 83 weeks, because that will put butts in the seats. Let me just say that will put butts in the seats. Uh, it'll put, it'll put Meltzer's butt in a seat. That's for sure. Shane Douglas pinned buff Bagwell in seven minutes and 53 seconds. Um, Tori Wilson comes out after she's she's so hot it leads to, to a, this day she's so hot is is it just me or does the i mean i feel like she's more roll tied now than ever i'm telling you i saw her when did i see her last it was about what is this this is may probably in october i saw her at a comic-con in phoenix and she walked up and you know she recognized me and she gave me a big hug and a hello and and it took me a second because she's hotter now than she's ever been. Right. So much so I didn't recognize her. I was like, oh, my God, am I over in Phoenix or what? <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> and you know what? She is the sweetest person. She is such a solid citizen. But, yeah, she's just hot as hell. Well, Yeah. Tori Wilson comes out at first. She slaps Douglas that leads Bagwell to uh, schoolboy for a near fall. And then Bagwell then kissed her and she gives him a low blow and uh, Meltzer writes, whatever happened to say that angel? again. She did what Bagwell then kissed her and she gave him a low blow. <laughs> hmm. Are you all right? Tony Schiavone. 
whatever happened to that angle where Bagwell <laughs> gave all the women these horrible lines he could never get a date. Douglas used his fisherman suplex for a near fall. Bagwell came back and set up the blockbuster, but Wilson stopped him. Douglas used a reverse atomic drop and a reverse stunner. Wilson is now Douglas's head cheerleader, and Douglas is at least good at getting a woman over. Two stars. So once again, some low blows and some interference par for course. Let's get to why we're here. This is directly from the observer. Hulk Hogan pinned Jeff Jarrett to theoretically win the WCW title. Vince Russo came out looking forlorn. Jarrett came down. Russo told him to lay down. Russo threw the belt in the ring. Like he was mad. Hogan put his foot on Jarrett for the pin. Jarrett got right up and walked out and didn't look very happy in the process. Hogan said it was bullshit like this that Russo was doing that was ruining wrestling. The announcers went on and on about what they saw, just saying it was real life, not a part of the format, etc. Mark Madden, who hates Hogan, took great delight, uh, clearly thinking it was a shoot and that uh, Hogan was exposed for what he is. So that's sort of the, uh, the feedback from the observer in the rundown. Any response to that before we move along? Of course, we're going to circle back. You know, as goofy as some of the shit that you laid out to me, you know, that took place in, in the match, and, and, it, and it was, admittedly, it, 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 as, you, as you read this back to me, and then I'm at the same time trying to play it back in my mind and remembering it or, or, or visualize it, it's just god-awful. It really is. But so is Dave Meltzer's <laughs> summation of events. It's just as absurd and distorted, and it's 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 just hard for me to follow. Honestly, when you read this stuff back to me, so much of it is nonsense. So much of it is, you know, Melzer trying to prove he knows what's going on and he's an expert, and and he sees things that other people don't see, and he's so wrong about so much that it's really hard to listen to. Just like those matches were hard to watch. So is some of the stuff that you read to me. It's just hard to listen to. Well, it's going to get better. Vampiro <laughs> came back. A whole bunch of stings came out with masks. One of them actually Nashville wrestler, Chris Harris hit Vampiro with a bat with the announcers asking the question, if it was the real sting, God, after four years, they still make their announcers look like idiots. And they wonder why nobody believes any of their angles. When Vampiro came back in the background, you could see Hogan and his son, Nicholas leaving the building, quote unquote, wrestling with shadows with young son, blade in tears as daddy was screwed by the evil promoter. So there he's clearly showing that, Hey, this is clearly an angle and they're borrowing this storyline from wrestling with shadows. And you're going to dispute that. Oh my God. Oh, Meltzer, you, you, you've been, you've been sucking on the teat of the Hart family for way too long. In the observer, Dave wrote Russo then came out and tried to do a face interview. Nobody reacted to what he said. It was kind of embarrassing. Have him do his pep talk and the paid and papered crowd, apparently not computer savvy enough to be in on all things that happened during the week, had no clue what he was talking about. Russo talked about his wife and three kids and how he didn't know if he would come back, but he did out of loyalty to all the great wrestlers in WCW. And as everyone in the WWF will attest, if nothing else, Russo is loyal. He came to save the career of Booker T, MIA, FAs, and Jarrett, and started ripping on the egomaniac Hulk Hogan. Hogan played his creative control card, and he said that Hogan insisted that he win the title from Jarrett. So he gave Hogan a belt 
and said that you will never see Hogan again. The basic theory seems to be that eventually breaking up WCW into a Bischoff led group on one show, which would actually be the old millionaires club against a Russo led group on another show, the new blood, which was probably the original idea for April, but they felt swerving everyone with them being put together and giving 12 weeks of programming that made no sense was more important. I guess. He then said Jarrett would wrestle Booker T for the new title because the old one was dead and buried because Hulk Hogan can kiss my ass. And then, um, he did all that right off the top of his head made for great TV for me, but the crowd reacted about like they did when Andy Kaufman faked a shoot and faked breaking character on Saturday night live all those years ago. So Meltzer loved this and thought it made for great. Of TV. course he did. Of course he did. But he admitted that it made no sense to the crowd. And this is but what he loved you... it anyway. Cause he loved it. Cause sure. it made no sense. Um, when did you see, I mean, obviously you said your phone was blown up and, and you heard that he sort of went into business for himself. When did you actually see the footage? Did you get a, uh, did somebody already have the pay-per-view? Did you order a replay? No, we, you know, like I said, we, we, Heard about it as soon as we landed. You know, it was like a 30-minute flight, I think, from Daytona to, to Clearwater Beach. And, and again, we were high-fiving all the way to Hulk's plane and on the plane. And we thought, okay, great. We've got a great story. We know where it's going to end in October. We know how it's going to end. And we were we were excited about it. We knew we were going to be able to make the title important again and kind of clean up some of the horrible mistakes that I had made and others had made during that period of time. And we felt like we were on the right track. And when literally, you know, probably a couple of minutes after the plane touched down and we got cell signals, both Terry and I were sitting next to each other on the jet and both of our phones just lit up like Christmas trees. And we had various people calling us and saying, did you hear, did you see what Russo did? Did you hear that promo? Whatever, whatever, whatever. And, you know, we didn't have any way to watch it. You know, once we got back to Hulk's house, um, we literally were, we were just talking to people. I mean, I guess we could have ordered a replay, but we didn't. We were just talking to people that we were there and trying to understand because initially it was like, well, wait a minute. That's not what we talked about. That's not what Brad Steele and all of us agreed to do. I mean, he literally went into business for himself. In the first probably 45 minutes of being in Clearwater, it was like, what the fuck? That, that doesn't make any sense. We were trying to make sense out of something that made no sense. Until it finally dawned on us that the dude actually had the balls to go into business for himself. And by that point, you know, it was, you know, <laughs> a declaration of war. There was there was no, let's watch it and see. We, we had a pretty clear idea what happened, and it was not what was supposed to happen. And things, you know, escalated from there. Well, let's talk about um, the rest of the card, and, and then we'll circle back. Uh, Bill Goldberg pinned Diamond Dallas Nash. Kevin Nash in four minutes and 21 seconds. Nash said if he didn't win and bring Hall back, that he'd leave the company. Not much of a match. Scott Steiner came out in the guise of Nash's best friend and turned on him at the end. I think that's four pay-per-views in a row where the most hype match on the card had the exact same finish. Goldberg then speared and jackhammered Nash and ripped up Hall's contract. Half a star. Uh, you know what? I'm going to save this one and we'll just circle back because I want to talk about that on a Scott Hall episode. T pinned Jarrett to win the new belt in 13 minutes and 40 seconds. The announcers did a great job getting the belt in the match over. They worked hard, but seemed very nervous because the match had a lot of slow spots and things were off. They did a lot of near falls. And of course the obligatory ref bump, they teased the bell shot finish 
And Jarrett then gave a recovering Billy Silverman, the stroke, which made no sense. But T hit the Uranagi when Mark Johnson ran in fully clothed, I might add, and counted the pin three stars. And I guess we should say that, uh, that that's the end of the pay-per-view. Vince Russo has said that Booker T winning the world title is the proudest achievement of his career. Your thoughts? Look, Russo has gotten himself over from the very beginning. When he, when he first came to WCW, his big bitch or his, his position was that, you know, I'm going to get all the young guys over all the boys in the back, you know, the, the older guys who have kept the younger guys down. He's always been, he's always been the underdogs hero, right? That's how he's always gotten himself over, you know, even as recently as, you know, being disinvited to, you know, the all in event, his position was, you know what the bro, you know, if it means that I have to stand up for myself so that, you know, no young guy or young girl is ever hurt in the ring because of what I believe is the right way and the wrong way, you know, to present the sport, then that's okay with me, you know, or, or he uses his, you know, convenient religious, you know, perspective to, you know, to use that as his defense. He's always, he's, he's always trying to be somebody's protector. And I think in this case, look, that match was never supposed to happen. The reason that match was awkward is because it wasn't supposed to happen. The end of it was supposed to be Hogan walking out with the title. There was not supposed to be a Jared Booker T match and Booker T getting the title. That's a fact. That was Russo going into business for himself. That was not supposed to happen. That pay-per-view was supposed to end with Hulk Hogan walking out with the fucking title, or at least that's, that's how the world title story was supposed to end. So that's just, that's just Russo once again, trying to make himself a hero by putting Booker T over and having, you know, the ability to say, yeah, but you know, I'm such a supporter of African-Americans and I was ahead of my time that I wanted to put Booker T over. It's bullshit. That's the reason why I don't. Look, I've said this to you before, before we even started doing this podcast, I believe I don't have to like anybody that I work with. I really don't. It's not a prerequisite, but I have to have a level of trust. I have to believe there's at least a modicum of honesty. It doesn't mean I have to agree or disagree. It doesn't mean that I have to absolutely see things the same way or even remember things the same way other people remember them. But when people outright, out, out, just outright lie and manipulate and con i got a problem with that and that's vince russo in my opinion and there's so many things that i like about him there's so many reasons why i wish i didn't feel the way i felt i've tried i tried you know after you know he 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 boned us both and by the way hulk hogan ended up you know with a very big smile on his face as a result of what went down at Bash of the Beach 2000, both he and his attorney. I went out to dinner with them after they settled their case, and they never told me because they were under strict confidentiality. They never told me the outcome. The only thing Hulk Hogan told me over dinner and cocktails with Henry Holmes was that, my God, I love getting fired. <laughs> I mean, that was a horrible, horrible mistake on Russo's part because he let his ego and his emotion, you know, get the better of him. And he wasn't honest about it. And he's still not honest about it to this day. So let's sort of set the stage because Booker T says before the pay-per-view, he got a call and they told him that he's in line next. 
and Sunday was going to be his night. So this is probably, you know, he got a call from who? Well, he, he says he doesn't remember who called him. All right. And I don't remember where it came from. So don't ask me. I wasn't asking that. I'm saying he knew the night before, at least that he was going to become the champion. So seemingly Russo sort of had this in his back pocket the whole time. What time did you, I mean, tell me, carry me through the day. You know, you, you guys arrive at bash at the beach. What's your interaction? Like, is there extensive back and forth? I mean, I know you referenced the whole moment with, um, you know, the, the trailer and the, and the conference call about what time was that happening? Is this two hours before the show, four hours before the show? Do you recall? All right. Here's, here's the day as, as best I can remember it. As I said, my, my father passed on the 4th of July. I was in Minneapolis during the week. Hulk and I were going back and forth over what we wanted to do. Vince, of course, had his own ideas about what he wanted to do. There was not a lot of communication between, you know, the parties other than Terry and I. And quite frankly, that's all that mattered at that point. Or at least that's all I was concerned about. My father's funeral took place, I believe it was either that Saturday morning or that Sunday morning. Either way, I had booked my flight to get into Daytona Beach and I knew I was going to be about a half hour late, 45 minutes late. Just I was in Minneapolis and, and that was the best I could do. There was a service after the funeral and all that kind of thing. And I wasn't going to cut that short. So I called Janie and I called Russo and said, look, you know, our, our production meetings were usually around noon. And that's where we would lay out TV and finishes and, you know, whatever everybody needed to know from a production point of view. And I, I knew I was going to be late. So I gave everybody a heads up and I told Russo, do not start the production meeting until I get there because I knew I suspected, I should say, you know, what he would do. I knew he would hijack it. I suspected he would. So I got there and I was actually a little later than that. I probably came in about an hour late, about one o'clock and went right to the room where the production meeting was taking place. And they were just wrapping up, which means they started probably ahead of time. And I knew right then there was something going on. I mean, that was, that was not supposed to happen. From that point, you know, I confronted Russo. You know, we went back and forth. I brought Hulk into the conversation. We listened to his ideas one more time. I laid out my idea one more time. We tried to reach a compromise. Then we ended up in the bus. You know, that was pretty much the layout of the day. So if you're telling me that, you know, someone who nobody remembers had a conversation with Booker T who doesn't remember who had the conversation with him. My gut tells me it was probably Russo and my gut tells me it was premeditated. My gut tells me he wanted to put himself on TV because he was a TV whore. My gut tells me he knew exactly what he was going to do because he knew what we were going to do. He knew that Hulk and I were going to leave the building and he was going to shoot his own angle. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. I don't know. Maybe it makes you know different sense to you or you know, the people that are listening to this, but having been there and having lived through it, I think it was premeditated. Yeah. I mean, it certainly feels that way, especially when Booker got the heads up the day before, um, what was Hogan's day? Like that day, was there anything out of the ordinary? I mean, did y'all ever discuss that? I mean, like, as far, you know, the, the, the actual pay-per-view day here, were any of the boys behaving differently? Uh, I mean, did, did any, did, I know you sort of said that you felt like something was up. Did Hogan have a similar experience to the best of your knowledge? No, no. I mean, the only thing that threw me off that suggested to me that things were a little bit out of whack was the fact that, you know, Russo 
chose to, you know, start the production meeting without me after I told them not to. That was a, that's a pretty big red flag. Um, who in their production meeting knew your plan finished, which was a fuck finish anyway. I mean, because the reason I ask is because Vince has said that the announcers didn't know what was going to happen. Only you, him and Hulk knew not about him coming back out, but about the, the, the stupid finish with Jarrett did. I mean, so if you knew. I guess my question is, what did it fucking matter if you relate to the production meeting if you weren't talking about that anyway? I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I'm following you. Okay, let me start over. I, I'm probably did a poor job. If he started the production meeting early without you, who would have been in that production meeting? Everybody. So Vince also says that you guys were sort of working the boys, and that the plan was you were gonna walk out, have him walk out with the belt, and Jarrett lay down. And that all went according to plan. Russo says, nobody knew that we were working. Everybody. The only people who knew that was the plan were you himself and Hulk Hogan. And obviously Jarrett's going to be smartened up, but that the announcers and everybody else wouldn't know. So my question is if no one in the production meeting knew what the finish was going to be anyway, why did it matter? It would have mattered because, you know, in a production meeting, you cover a lot of things like who's going to cover what camera wise timing, you know, what people are going to say, how they're going to say it, your announcers. Um, we wouldn't necessarily have smartened anybody up. I certainly wouldn't have smartened anybody up in that room, but I would have made sure that we would have been able to cover that series of events appropriately so that we could tell the story afterwards. And for Russo to start the production meeting and start laying out finishes without me being in the room, that that should have never happened. It, it including a lot of the undercard matches that should have never happened. I should have been able to say, nah, we're not going to do that the same way, by the way, <laughs> that happens every single week in WWE today. When yeah. you have, when you have a bunch of writers and you have a bunch of agents, you have a bunch of really professional people laying out TV and Vince McMahon has the opportunity to go, nah, we're not going to do that. That's how it's run. Well, let's talk about, um, the decision to sort of swerve the boys. What was the thinking at the time? I mean, Meltzer was even being pretty critical of that in the newsletter that in this company, nobody knows for sure what's an angle or not. Why did you think the move was to swerve the boys? Because the boys were feeding guys like Meltzer, all of Meltzer's information. Where, do, where the hell do you think Meltzer got the information that we were considering Mabel to be the third man in the NWO story? Where do you think he got that from one of the boys? Here's, here's, here's the, here's the real truth that nobody wants to hear. Nobody really gets excited hearing about or talking about, but you have to understand the culture of the industry. Now we're going back to the eighties and nineties, right? Mid nineties, early two thousands before the internet, Dave Meltzer, for the most part, had a corner on the dirt in the inside information. And I don't want to spend this entire broadcast or podcast on this, but in order to understand why I have the disdain for some of the shit that you tell me Dave Meltzer wrote as well as others, it's because I understand the impact that it had on the business much more than you do or anybody else listening to this does because I was in the business when it was occurring. But back in the 90s, the late 80s and the early 90s when Meltzer was just writing whatever bullshit any third string fucking player and, and, and jabroni that wanted Meltzer to write something positive about that person, you'd have a third string guy or some new guy or some mid card guy 
all they really wanted was attention from Meltzer because they knew, that talent knew, that at least in Turner Broadcasting, if some executive in Turner read something in a dirt sheet, and by the way, these executives lived off dirt sheets because they knew nothing about the business. They never came to an event. They never spent any time in the office. They never really asked any questions. But they were directly or indirectly responsible for the wrestling division. So what did they rely on for information? They relied on the dirt sheets. Everybody, every wrestler in WCW knew that. When I got there as a third string backup to a backup to a backup announcer, I figured that out pretty quickly. That all of the talent knew that corporate Turner relied, and one person in particular who was designated as the wrestling expert, a guy by the name of Jeff Carr, who was in the programming division of Turner Broadcasting, he, he, whether he wanted it or not, he was considered the wrestling expert, and he never left his office. All he would do is read dirt sheets, and that would give him his basis of fact and opinion. And every wrestler knew that. So all they did was feed Dave information that they thought Dave wanted to hear, so in the hopes that Dave Meltzer would write something good about them or at least not bury them, which is probably more the case more, more often than not. And that stuff, that, that sewage would float up to Turner Broadcasting and it would affect a lot of decisions that if it directly impacted WCW. Again, when I first got there, before I was in control. And that's one of the reasons why when people say, why do you beat up on Dave Belzer? Why do you have such a hard on for, you know, for dirt sheets? That's why, because I saw the negative and the adverse impact that it created because ignorant people who were too fucking lazy to get out of the chair and learn about the business that they were supposedly overseeing would just as soon, you know, read what Dave Meltzer wrote and make, make up their minds what WCW should be doing based on that. And as we have discovered, a la Mabel being the third man in the NWO, Dave Meltzer's shit was horrible. I respect Dave. Dave has been in the business for a long time. Dave has made a lot of money in the business. And I respect that. I really do. I don't dislike Dave Meltzer. I abhor, abhor what he did to the business during that period of time because I saw it. I just, I did. Why did we get on this topic? We're going to go back. You asked me why work the boys. That was the question that led me on to my diatribe. Um, I had to work the boys because the boys were all feeding information right. to Melser. So Tony even says on, on air, we've all been swerved. And Madden said, we're deviating from the script. And, and I know that Russo says they didn't know, but those feel like some pretty, I mean, those feel like fed lines. Oh, well, they weren't. Russo, this is, uh, you're going to love this little nugget. Uh, are you ready for this? Fuck, brother, I just poured myself another Jameson. I'm ready for anything. Russo said he wore the Giants jersey to make it look like a shoot because any other time he always wore a New York sports jersey when he was on TV. He's a fucking douchebag. Always has been, always will be. No, that's mean. I like him. Uh, let's talk about this. This is a great question we get a lot of. Why were there two world titles there that night? That, to me, seems like evidence that we knew that this was going to be the finish. And I actually, um, read the, the book on the big gold, it's called the big gold belt. And it was written by my buddy, Dick Bourne. And in there, we learned that a company in Marietta, Georgia, AFX studios actually made cast copies of the belt. So that night Jarrett wore a completely gold 
like cast copy of the big gold. And that's what Hogan left with. But Hogan for years thought he actually had the real original belt when in fact, that's what Booker T would win from Jarrett later that night. Did you even know at the time that there were two copies of the belt there? No. I mean, it doesn't seem like something that anybody would have really paid attention to nitro is worth mentioning the next night did a 2.6. Now the week prior, the 4th of July weekend did a 2.3. So the rating is up, bro. Um, the promo itself, I think is pretty famous. Everybody's heard that, but let's talk about the death of WCW and you're actually going to get to, uh, defend this with RD Reynolds. They wrote in the book there that Russo got mad and quit again on June 15th. And this time he was really upset over Lex Luger, Kimberly and Elizabeth that he'd sent them all home earlier and had no plans to ever use them again. And that really was sort of what got the, uh, the problem going. Do you remember there being that sort of being the catalyst, the straw that broke the camel's back, something with Luger, Kimberly and Elizabeth? Absolutely not. The, 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 the straw that broke my back or my camel's back was what happened at bash at the beach. I was done after that. No, this is before that. That was June 15th. What I was referencing before he left and sort of came back. And I don't know that I really even knew that the, the reason he left and then was, was gone. Nah, that was, that was bullshit excuse. The reason he left is because I was pressuring him to come up with a fucking plan. That's why he left. The reason he left was the same reason he left in TNA. And the same reason he melted down there was because he's only he's a one trick pony with nothing under the hood who doesn't understand how to tell a story other than the story that he wants to tell in a given match. He's he's a clusterfuck finish guy that is passionate about one idea that has no idea how to connect it to the rest of the story. He just doesn't he's not a writer. It would be like me calling myself an astronaut because I have a private pilot's license. You know, he wrote, you know, he was a writer in a a goofy wrestling magazine. He conned himself into being in a creative position in WWE. And then he conned himself again in WCW and in in TNA. But the guy does not have a, a a creative bone in his body in terms of a long-term story. Not suggesting he doesn't have good ideas, momentary ideas, but that doesn't make you a writer. That just makes you, you know, an idea person. He's not a writer. And the pressure that I put on him to tell me a three, a three month story, an arc, you know, a beginning, a middle and an end. Every fucking book you ever read has a beginning and a middle and an end. Every movie that you watch, if you watch a movie that's 90 minutes, the the first 20 minutes of that is act one. You know, act two is the largest portion of the movie and act three is about the same length as act one. It's a beginning and a middle and an end. You set up the story. You create the stakes in the middle of the story in act two, and then you pay it off and you show us the journey in act three. It's really simple shit. It's not that hard to figure out. Every single story that's ever been told is based on one of seven simple stories from the beginning of fucking time. And Vince Russo couldn't grasp that. That's why he cracked. That's why he cratered. That's why he went home. And the fact that he blamed it on other people is just representative of his fucking whiny shit. (laughs) So you wrote in your book that that's really the it. That's really the end for you and Russo. You were done with him. And you told Brad you couldn't work with him. Brad wants to set up a meeting with you guys out in L.A. 
and you agree and assume that he's going to side with you since you had ran the plan by Brad and Brad approved it instead of coming down on one side or the other, which you probably assumed he'd come down on your side. He tries to make it work somehow. And you write, I don't think Brad understood the magnitude of the problem or the fact that Hogan intended to sue. Russo was a great whiner. He'd get these puppy dog eyes and be very emotional. He was a good carn artist. I was shocked that Brad seemed to be trying to find a way to compromise. Maybe he was overwhelmed by Russo's passion for his position. But looking back, I think Brad didn't want to report to the people that he reported to that he had to fire Russo, even though he didn't like the dark, no star approach and the stunts Russo had pulled, he couldn't pull, uh, bring himself to pull the plug. And you write that you made it easy for him. What'd you do? Told him I leave. I had no desire to work there. I, I, I was very, you know, as we covered early on in this podcast, I didn't need it. I, I was excited about the prospect of coming back if, if there was a chance to make it right and to make it work. But at that point, clearly, that wasn't an option. WCW was way more fucked up at that point than it was when I left in September of 99. And there was no hope of making it better under the circumstances that I was was in. So it was just way too easy for me to pursue the other opportunities that I had. I didn't need the money. Um, I didn't need the headache. I didn't see an option. It's not, look, I'm, I'm not a money guy. You know, I'll, I'll work for free if I have passion and believe in what I'm doing. It's not always about the money for me. But at that point, you know, there was just, there was no financial incentive. I, I had my deal. If Brad wanted to send me home again, you know, under the, the second agreement that I had, which was, you know, mid six figures in a two movie deal. Um, cool. <laughs> or make a decision that would give me the ability to run the company the way I thought it should be run, at least the creative side of it. Cool. Just don't put me in the middle. It's either one or the other, you know, it's, it's either black or it's white, but the, there was no gray area for me. And I forced him to choose and he chose and he chose, I think, because politically, and if, you know, again, this is the part Nobody wants to really, you know, get into the weeds and I understand it's fucking boring and all that shit. But at that time, at that moment in time, every single head of any division of Turner Broadcasting, WCW, CNN, the Atlanta Braves, TNT, TBS, Headline News, New Line Cinema, Hanna-Barbera, whatever, Turner Home Satellite, you name it, everybody Every executive that was in charge of any one of those divisions, they all had stock options. And those stock options were based on performance. And the last thing in the middle of a merger anybody wants to do is get shit canned and lose their stock options or underperform and lose their stock options. And Brad was under a lot of pressure. I get it. I, I, and I like, I still to this day, I don't talk to Brad. I haven't seen Brad in years. We have mutual friends that, you know, I cross paths with. In, in Hollywood from time to time. But I still have a tremendous amount of respect for Brad. But he made a piss poor choice. He didn't have the balls to do what he needed to do and call the ball the way he knew he should have called it. But he had to, he had to call the ball politically, and he did. He couldn't fire Russo because he hired him four months earlier, five months earlier. And that would be admitting that you made a horrible mistake. It was a lot easier just to take the, the loud, obnoxious guy who's already pissed off half the you know executive committee of Turner Broadcasting just to make him go home. That was an easier decision for him. I get it. 
cool with it. If I see Brad, you know, walking down the street in Beverly Hills, I'll buy him a beer. I get it. Yeah. I mean, you wrote in your book, Brad seems to have seen this as the path of least resistance talking about accepting you stepping aside. Uh, so he took it. Brad didn't like confrontation or tough decisions. And then you also reiterate that he really didn't understand what this legal problem was going to represent. And, and I know that you really don't know the number. I mean, but if you had to guess, this is a, this is a two comma settlement, right? Not going to go there. You can't get me to go there. Hogan wrote in his book, little by little Russo and WCW just ran the product into the ground and out of existence. And for me personally, those two years when he was in charge were hell. The only thing this guy was clear about the wrestling business was that he wanted me out. And then came the last straw at bash of the beach, 2000. Well, you know what happened. And then he wanted Scott Steiner, who was known as big Papa pump to come into the ring and help Jeff Jarrett beat me up. Hell, they were going to beat me up so bad. I would be have, I would have to be taken out of the arena on a stretcher. It didn't surprise me at that point. I was used to having to lose matches and get carried on a stretcher. So all I said was, okay, then what, what are we going to do the next night on nitro and Johnny ACE Vince Russo's liaison said after bash at the beach, Vince doesn't have any more plans for you. And Hulk said, but I have several months left of my contract and he's not going to bring me back. That doesn't work for me. And Johnny ACE suggests there's an alternate finish where Jarrett would win the title, but get dehued somehow. And then I would beat everybody up and look like Superman. And as I was kicking everybody's ass, Jarrett would sneak out with the title belt. Vince Russo was trying to appease my ego with that finish, but just like the other scenario, I wouldn't be coming back. So I told Johnny ACE, sorry, brother, that doesn't work for me either. Obviously I had to talk to Russo in person. So I went early to the bash at the beach and sat down on a bus with Russo and Bischoff. And I said, look, Vince, I know you want me to leave WCW, but my contract gives me creative control. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to beat Jeff Jarrett for the title tonight. Then I'm going to leave with the belt and WCW will start a tournament to name a new champion. The finals of the tournament will be held at a major pay-per-view where I will claim my position as the real world champion. The outcome would give me a continuing role at WCW. And the important thing was that I wanted to keep my career at WCW and beyond. If it came to that on a positive note, so I could pick up again at the same level somewhere else. It sounded reasonable as far as I was concerned, but Russo didn't think so. He got all pissed off and said, that's not what I want. I want Jeff Jarrett to win the night. And if I was going to screw you, I just tell Jeff Jarrett to lay down in the middle of the ring and the hell with it. And I said, sure, that'll really work. Jeff Jarrett can just lay down and I can pin him one, two, three and take the belt. But if we do that, we're going to piss off a lot of people who want to see it's wrestle. And Russo said, that's what I want to do. I want Jeff Jarrett to lay down. And I insisted, but that's screwing the fans over. Is that the way you sort of remember it? I know you laid out your version. It's not that different than Hogan's. But do you remember that being that finish being Russo's suggestion and Hogan sort of going with it? No. Look, Hulk's my best friend. Sure. I just talked to him half an hour before I, you know, get on this podcast with you. I've said this before. I'll say it again a million times. And and our listeners can shoot holes in it. They can call bullshit. Whatever they want to do. I don't really give a shit at this point in my life. It doesn't matter to me anymore. We all remember things from our own perspectives. That's right. We all have told these stories a million times over. And each time we tell them, because we're storytellers and because we're entertainers and because we're passionate about the, the things that we've done, we tell these stories over and over again. And sometimes we remember things differently or we add a little or lose a little. 
to the point where after a hundred times or a thousand times or whatever, we, we, we remember the stories the way we, we remember them. And I think this is the case here. And it's, I'm guilty of it too. I, I know I am. It's one of the reasons I was reluctant to do this kind of a podcast because it was 20 years ago. You know, we don't have all of the data in front of we're relying for the majority of our our podcast. We're relying on the credibility of Dave fucking Meltzer, a scum sheet writer who made shit up to 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 sell dirt sheets to people for ten dollars a month. I mean, he's he was the original clickbait. But that's what we're using as the basis for so much of our discussion. And the truth is. Whether it's Dave Meltzer or Eric Bischoff or Hulk Hogan or anybody else or Vince Russo or Bret Hart, we all kind of have our version of the truth. I'm telling you my version of it is that Hulk's recollection of that is about 75% accurate, about 25% self-serving. And he's my best friend. So, you know, wherever it ends, it ends. But, you know, not quite accurate, at least from my perspective. Maybe it is from his, but not from mine. Oh my gosh. He wrote in his book, um, you know, that he didn't like the, the suggestion that he was holding Booker T down for the last 14 years or something like that. He says, and it took its toll on me. I lost salary, merchandise, royalty revenue, and my standing and reputation in the wrestling business. But the biggest hit I took was in my own head. After what Vince Russo did and said about me on television, I started second guessing myself. I started wondering if maybe I wasn't what he said I was, and I had become increasingly depressed. Uh, for the next couple of years, it seemed nobody remembered that I was the guy who made wrestling King in the eighties and nineties. It seemed nobody remembered that I was the guy who slammed Andre the giant. All I heard was, aren't you the guy who was too old to wrestle and got fired by Vince Russo? And how could you let him say those things about you? In the meantime, I sued WCW for breach of contract and defamation substantially based on his incident with Vince Russo. And in the suit, I pointed out that I was supposed to be used on a certain number of pay-per-views a year as the featured wrestler in WCW didn't do that. I also pointed out I had creative control, which meant that anything WCW did with me, I had to agree to, but the interview that Vince Russo gave after my match with Jeff Jarrett was something we never discussed. Adding to it all, the outcome of my match with Jarrett was not as we agreed, and it violated my WCW contract. Unfortunately, the lawsuit could only get me the money that was coming to me. It couldn't restore my reputation or repair the enormous emotional damage done to my self-esteem and embarrassment and emotional distress caused to me and my family. I needed to fix myself somehow. I needed to lift that dark cloud that was hanging over my head. I just didn't know if I could still do that. So you're leaving. You just got a show picked up by UPN. The fishing's good that time of year in Wyoming. So you're home. Hogan's suing. How often are you guys in touch about this? And how much of this is for real? Was Hogan really sort of in his head about sort of being forced out of WCW this way? <clears throat> that part was really accurate. Um, it, it, it hit him pretty hard in the fact that we both got swerved by Russo. Um, Cause we're both pretty smart guys and usually, you know, when in, in situations like this, you generally, you know, know how to protect yourself. But I think leaving that building, you know, that was the mistake. It, you know, going back and replaying the whole thing after, you know, doing this podcast with you, trusting Vince Russo. That was the first mistake. The second mistake was associated with that is, 
you know, we should have never, knowing we shouldn't have trusted Vince Russo, leave the building where, where we couldn't have corrected, um, even in an imp- improvisational way, what he did. That was the second mistake. And I, and I think, you know, for, t- you know, for my point of view, I was done. You know, I wasn't worried about my reputation. I wasn't Hulk Hogan. I, you know, I hadn't spent 25 years being Hulk Hogan. I was simply, you know, the WCW guy. And I had other things that I was, you know, ready to do anyway. So I wasn't as emotional about it as Hulk was, but it did bother him. And we did talk a lot and often. And I knew he was going to sue. And I knew he was going to sue that night. You know, when, once we arrived in Tampa and we heard what happened, I, I, I was a hundred percent confident he was going to sue and I was a hundred percent confident he was going to win. Um, but it did take, you know, an emotional toll on him. Vince Russo has said that Jeff Jarrett believed this was all a shoot that night. Did you ever have a conversation about that night with Jeff Jarrett? Did he believe it was all a shoot that night or what was he thinking was the plan that evening? I never talked to Jeff about it. Vince also claims that, uh, even though everyone felt like they were in agreement about the finish as of Friday, I mean, he, even allegedly Russo says that he sent Johnny Ace to Hogan's house on Friday to map out what the finish would be. Vince says that Hogan's attorney actually faxed a memo to the office after hours on Friday saying that this doesn't work for me, brother. Did you ever hear of a fax like that? Or is that more Russo BS? No, that's true. So I'm just fascinated by this. Hogan would call his attorney and have his attorney say, Hey brother, need you to send a fax to the office. Just say that doesn't work for me, brother. And sign HH at the bottom. No, I, I, I told him to do it. I just, so there was a legal paper trail, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, allegedly Jarrett believes this was all a shoot until the very next night. And that's when Russo smartens him up that that was the original plan, but he sort of piled on at the end. Uh, Meltzer reported Hogan in his obligatory interview with Bubba the love sponge said his version was he went into a meeting with Jarrett Russo and Bischoff Jarrett had to leave the meeting to interfere in a match. And Hogan said he thought it was weird because Jarrett never came back and they weren't done going over the match. Hogan said he jobbed to Jarrett, but when he found out Russo didn't want to use him anymore and was asking what his plans were, he said, there's nothing left for you to do. And that only left that he should insist on winning, which made Russo go nuts. And, uh, he said when he was trying to calm Russo down, Russo was cussing him out. Do you remember Russo like getting fired up and cussing you guys that day in the, in the, in your truck? No. Okay. Russo, Russo would not, he is the most passive aggressive, non-confrontational pussy I've ever done business with. If he's hot, he's going to go bitch to his wife about it. He's not going to confront the person he's hot with. They called Siegel who agreed that Hogan could win the title and Russo agreed to it. And Hogan thought it was resolved. And Johnny Ace came up with a finish and he says on Bubba Love Sponge, I had my blades with me. And the idea here is it's sort of the old school thing. If somebody tries to fuck you around, you've got your blades with you. So you can sort of defend yourself. Do you think Hogan went out there that night thinking there was a double cross and had blades on his person? No. (laughs) I love that he just uses some creative license when he needs to to jazz a story up. Well, you know, Hulk Hulk said a lot of shit on Bubba Love Sponge during a really dark period of his life. Sure. And I love him like a brother. I really do. But 
there were times during that period of time when he was showing up on Bubba's show because Bubba was using him. Of course. A lot. And, it, you know, between his back surgeries and his divorce and what his kid was going through, you know, Hogan has said himself, you know, he'd wake up and drink a half a bottle of vodka and, you know, a fistful of pills. He said a lot of shit on Bubba the Love Sponge that right. came back to haunt him. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, whatever you know what i mean you know sure. what i'm saying absolutely let's let's just move along um one of the things that made me laugh is on one of these bubba appearances he says i would be on raw tonight except i can't get out of my contract and he claimed that he was going to call mcmahon to see if he could get his son nicholas to show up on raw and give him the belt uh, obviously that never really happened but did do you recall hogan having conversations with vince mcmahon not too long after this happened just to see what it would look like no, but it doesn't surprise me. You know, Vincent and, and Hulk have always had, they've, you know, they've had a really bizarre, it still do to this day, um, probably till this minute, a, a very unique relationship. So it doesn't, surpri- doesn't surprise me. I'm, I'm, I'm not shocked to hear that, but I wasn't aware of it. Um, of course, Elzer didn't know what to make of this. And, um, Bubba asked, and this is directly from the observer. When Bubba asked if it was a work or a shoot, Hogan said, I don't do works on your show. Still, this is according to the observer, Hogan's closest friends in the company the next day were openly talking about it being a swerve. And I get why people would say that because that was the original plate, just not Russo's promo. Uh, Russo was still insistent that it was a shoot claiming that, you know, if it was a work and Hogan ever returns to the company, he'll quit. Uh, the explanation given by those to Russo is that Siegel actually backed him and not Hogan and that Bischoff was neutral, but of course, That's so that I, I, honest to God, I, at, at this advanced age in my life, I will throw down physically with Russo or anybody else that maintains that position. I will go that you were that neutral. Is, that was so much uh, neutral Conrad. How long have you known me? Yeah, uh, like four or five a years. minute. A minute? Do you think I'm neutral about anything? No, you have very strong opinions. Uh, not as strong as Cornette, but not too fucking far off. Right or wrong? I mean, a lot of times I'm right, and a lot of times I'm wrong. But I am never fucking neutral. That's bullshit. <laughs> I like when you get fired up. Uh, Nash, who was close to the situation, backed up that everything was played out largely as Hogan said and claimed afterwards that Hogan told him Russo had got him because there was nothing he could do about it legally because he got his win. The word was that only Glenn Gilberti, Disco Inferno, uh, Jeff Jarrett, Bill Banks, and Ed Ferrara knew Russo's plan for Jarrett to lay down in the ring. Um, that's sort of weird that Bill Banks and Ed Ferrara and disco would have known when you didn't think anybody knew and you were working the boys. Um, Meltzer reported in, in the pay-per-view recap, uh, or I guess Keller, let me run through that. The official stance behind the scenes in WCW has been silence ostensibly due to a legal gag order from Siegel and WCW's legal department. The gag order is convenient because it provides an excuse to ignore the controversial situation rather than having to explain it and lie about the secret kept intact. Uh, this is sort of fun because I don't know that a lot of people knew that there was like a gag order here and, and he would continue. Meanwhile, Bischoff is back home in Phoenix, Arizona and was not at TV this week. He has not spoken officially since walking out of the arena after Hogan incident at the pay-per-view on Sunday, WCW announced Tuesday that Bischoff is quote, taking some time off 
to allow Russo room to work in quote, WCW needed a reason that Bischoff wasn't around until September quote, giving Russo room to work seems plausible enough. So do you remember when you sort of left that Siegel had to sort of say, now here's the spin we're going to put on this. Here's the way we're going to, here's the face we're going to put on it. You know, I'm not sure why Brad felt he needed any kind of spin. It, it was obvious, you know, Brad wanted me to, you know, he made his choice. He wanted me to go home again. Um, I'm not sure what his thinking was, what Brad's thinking was as it relates to spin. Um, certainly can't explain or justify what was in the minds of the people that wrote about it. But as far as I was concerned, I was done. It's sort of interesting because it's reported in all the dirt sheets that after the pay-per-view Russo went to the hotel bar to hang out with all the wrestlers. And he's not really known for going to the hotel bar, but he went to, he went this night to tell everybody it says going away party. And he insisted to everyone that what happened with him and Hogan was a shoot. And he joked that maybe some of these guys could represent him as his lawyer when he had to face Siegel because he knew he was going to be fired. Now, allegedly, a lot of people still don't buy any of this quote. Lots of people in the company have gotten really upset over how far everyone went to try to get last week's work, noting that even Vince Russo went to the bar after the pay-per-view, which he never does to say goodbyes to everyone acting like he expected to be fired. Meanwhile, Bischoff was working everyone with the idea. He was either taking a sabbatical or even quitting the company in disgust and the lack of trust of anything and anyone within the company has only gotten worse. Even if it's a good angle, and it was to me, although it's still questionable what the average wrestling fan made of it, because at this point, it appears that it doesn't take and nobody cares. Uh, working the boys, the office, and this isn't the first time, and it won't be the last, just creates an environment where almost nobody in the office cares. In hindsight, do you think that that maybe was a was the the tactical error here? And because it does create like. I know myself at the time, I thought it was a work and I thought it was Hogan working and you working. It is, it's a weird, fascinating business where the lines of reality and entertainment are blurred in such a way where it's better if you don't know, but in times like this, nobody fucking knows and nobody should know. And by the way, uh, and again, <laughs> this is so much about, you know, talking about the dirties. What the fuck does Dave Meltzer or Wade Keller or anybody else know about running a wrestling company and what's good or bad? Well, I none mean, of, th- I, none of them have ever spent a fraction of a fucking second in running, r- running a company, especially in the environment that we were in at that time or this time. And here is here is the essence of running a wrestling company, even to this day in the day and age of digital and social media where everything is out in the open, you still need to create moments of mystery and, 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 and controversy. Allah, even as insignificant as a moment as it may feel like in the, in that moment, when Brock Lesnar came back after his last match, um, with, uh, help me out here. Um, Last pay-per-view. Oh, Roman Reigns? With Roman Reigns. Sorry, Roman. And allegedly got fucking hot and threw the belt at Vince McMahon. And Shane McMahon got in Brock's face. And there was this moment in this controversy. That is a moment that is designed to create mystique. All right? You need that in this business. This is not documentary. This is not legitimate sports. This is not a sitcom. This is drama. 
sports drama, and if you don't create some mystique, if you don't create those moments where the audience isn't exactly sure what's real or what's not real, I'm sorry, Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller and everybody else that writes about this shit that's never spent a fraction of a second actually being in the business, you die. You have to create those moments where the audience isn't sure what's real and what's not. That's what makes them tune in. Otherwise, we'd all be watching the Dave Meltzer wrestling show. Oh, I'm sorry. It doesn't exist. I'm sorry. <sighs> it does. It does exist. It's called uh, wrestling observer live. It's at wrestlingobserver.com. And you're right. He's never ran a wrestling company, but he's also not done this at the same time. The losses continue to escalate with July's losses estimated at $7 million, the most by far of any month in the history of a company now on track to lose $80 million over the course of this year. I'm just Is there letting, a question. No, I'm just letting it marinate. Cause you were just saying these guys don't know how to run a wrestling company and they don't. Well, apparently you don't either motherfucker. $80 million. Holy shit. I wasn't running the wrestling company at the time. No, no shit. We know you were fishing and it was everybody else's fault. Um, now let's talk about how you're no, being, you did. No, now you're just being a smart ass. No, you're just being a smart ass. I'm not being a smart ass. It, this is ultimately your decision. You, you say that you sort of, what's my to, decision? What's my decision? Ultimately, what is my decision? You let all of this undercard bullshit happen while you're sitting in the back, drinking beers, farting in the couch, whatever you're doing with Hogan. And then want to say, oh, Russo booked it, not me. You did nothing so, to so, stop so it. So you're introducing facts into evidence now. All of a sudden, I'm sitting on a couch with Hulk Hogan drinking beer while all of this is happening. I'm sorry. We haven't had that conversation. No, I know. But I, where were you when they're filming a match in a fucking graveyard in the dark? Drinking beer in a couch. <laughs> here's, what I, here's what I appreciate about you. You'll just own it and like. Look, dude, by this point, I didn't fucking care. I had just gotten all of my money for the other contract. They gave me another one. I didn't have to come to work. I had a fucking UPN deal. I'm hanging out with my bro on his private jet and uh, trying to get paid and get on to the next one. You want to hear about that UPN deal? Can we just take a little diversion here for a moment? Well, let's circle back to UPN because I do want to ask this. Vince has said he Fuck, I'm looking for something to make me laugh. I'm not looking to get beat up anymore. My uh, God. Okay. I'll, Conrad, I'll stop. how much longer do you want to kick my ass All tonight? Right. All right. Hang on. Vince says he wasn't involved in the lawsuit and it was Hulk trying to get his money from WCW. So he wasn't a part of it, but he does say that the more he looks back years later on all of this quote, there's no doubt in my mind that I was set up by Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan. Oh, you Here's what happens when you have no creative skill and you're really not that bright of a bulb to begin with. You think everybody's out to get you. He says that you're always welcome on his show. And he would say all this stuff to your face. He says that you put no work into the shows. You didn't spend any time on any of them and that he and Ed Ferrara would write the show, send it to you. And you'd send the show back with red lines through it. No suggestions or anything. He says, that's what you did in TNA too. And that's why he and Ferrara never liked working with you. He says you got off on power and you got off on doing things like that. And he says once after a conversation with you, he threw his phone across his basement because he was so tired of hearing your voice. He told Brad Siegel to let you write the show because he was tired of you and you weren't going to let him, he wasn't going to let you talk to him that way and treat him in those ways anymore. And eventually that's when he put together the meeting for both of you to fly to LA, which he suggested was supposed to be 
the way to uh, side with him, of course, not your way, because he was sympathetic that he's out here doing all the work and you're just drinking beer, farting into your couch. So you've told us your version of that meeting, but what's your response to, he never came up with shit. He just redlined everything and treated me like an asshole. (laughs) He actually produces more wine than Napa Valley. (laughs) I've, I mean, it's a real toss-up between him and Bret Hart. It really is. I mean, I, I, I can't even really comment on that. Um, I can't tell you. I, I just can't. I mean, he's an idiot. You know, I can tell you. Sto- we don't want to talk about TNA on this podcast. I can tell you stories where he's been ex- so exposed as a fraud creatively and as a human being in front of people that were close friends of his, including TNA attorneys who, who, you know, at, at the height of the, the drama that he created, um, you know, actually forced a situation where TNA attorneys and executives had to come together in a room and, and call his shit out where he broke down and fucking cried and left the room because he realized he was exposed. That's who Vince Russo is. And you could like him, and I can like him, and other people can like him. And you can choose to believe what you want to believe, but I know who the real person is. And look, I, I try not to carry baggage around. I mean, if Bret Hart and I you know, meet somewhere in an airport, we want to sit down and have a beer and be human beings together, I'm cool. If not, I'm cool with that too. Same with Vince Russo. You know, here's what I think. We should... We should have you invite Bret Hart to have lunch at your private hangar. I don't have a private hangar anymore, though. I mean, I can't afford an airplane just anymore. Just fucking with you. Come on. Shit's, shit's changed, brother. <laughs> no shit. You're getting beat up by me on a podcast. Clearly. Uh, some shit's no, different. really. I mean, we could sit out in my driveway in Wyoming, <laughs> uh, smoke a joint, and have a beer and watch the antelope chase each other, but that's about it. That's hilarious. So Vince has went on his podcast, and I'm sure he's going to eat us up this week. Uh, I'm sure that's going to happen. Well, here's the good news. Nobody gives a fuck because nobody's going to listen to it. Woo. Uh, Vince says that you're bitter towards him because it's writing in the WWF cost you your job in WCW. Your response? I'm bitter towards him because he's a liar and a fraud. Uh, he also said he saw you on the WWE network with Cornette, and he says that he feels that he ran circles around you creatively. Your thoughts? Who did? Vince Russo. Oh, my God. Anybody listening to this knows differently. Well, here's the deal. You know, that was sort of the end of you and Hulk Hogan in WCW and Russo's out just three months later is bash at the beach. 2000, the most disastrous pay-per-view. I mean, it's certainly got, it's the pay-per-view of the most consequence in the history of wrestling. Is it not? I don't know the, the pay-per-view of the most consequence. Of well, here's what I mean. Like, wrestling. No, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to July 96 to claim that crown. Well, I mean, as far as the, you know, in a bad way, the, the idea being you've got the guy who really turned WCW around you and made it profitable for the first time ever. And he's out of here after this pay-per-view, you've got the guy who's really responsible for the boom in wrestling a decade or two, almost two decades prior. He's out of here top star. And, and now the guy who was responsible for sort of turning things around in the WWF creatively. But that's not true. That's a lie. That is a fucking lie. Your premise is based on a lie. Your premise is based on a fraud. I'm not going to buy that. I'm not going to let that fly on this show. Vince Russo's position 
is that he was responsible for that. It's not fucking true. Let's get to some questions. Chris Ford says, did Eric think Hogan was done with the business after this show? No. Uh, William wants to know, did Eric Bischoff confront Russo right after this or when did he, did you ever have a real confrontation or was the only time you really spoke about it with Brad Siegel in LA? No, it was only with Brad. I had no interest in it. And Conrad, you know, this, I've said this to you before at that moment, um, Vince Russo was dead to me. He was just like a corpse. I just had no desire to have a conversation with him. Law GT wants to know, was Eric going to be a witness for Hogan in the lawsuit against WCW? No. Oh, Jim knows how to ask the good questions. Jim writes, was anyone a filter for Russo in WCW or did he have 100% free reign? He had a hundred percent free reign until I showed up in about April of uh, 2000. Uh, Paul wants to know, do you feel this destroyed Jarrett's career? Yeah. Jarrett was a mid card guy, ended up a mid card guy and. I don't think it really impacted him. Travis wants to know, is there ever a moment when you thought you and Vince might actually succeed in turning WCW around? No. Uh, Daniel wants to know at this point, did you know the company was doomed at what point after, after not today in 2018 at bash at the beach, 2000. No, I, I knew at, at the end of bash at the beach, 2000, the company was dead in the water under the current management. Um, what gimmick match of Russo's did Eric like the most? And why is it Judy Bagwell on the pole? I fucking hate gimmick matches and the Judy Bagwell match is really <laughs> the defining moment of Vince Russo's creative career. Roger wants to know, was there any heat with Hogan and Jarrett? Mm, I wouldn't say heat. I would say lack of trust. Well, we trust that you are following us on Twitter. He is at E Bischoff. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. We will see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.